That's Luke chapter 2. And we'll read only here our text, which is verse 21. Luke 2, 21. Hear now the word of our God. And when eight days were accomplished for the circumcising of the child, his name was called Jesus, which was so named of the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Amen. May the Lord open this word to us and bless us under it this morning. Friend, we come to a text of scripture, as I've said to you already, that very seldom do we find many meditating upon. We come to a moment in gospel history that receives very little attention. And of course, I'm referring to that theme that we took up last Thursday morning, and that is the circumcision of Christ, what's held out to us here in Luke 2.21. The circumcision of the surety, the circumcision of Christ. And friend, there are a number of reasons why this is so little focused upon by others, but the chief reason being this, it must be this, it is always this. We are a people who so quickly forget that in the word of God we are held out, held out to us, are rich things, wonderful things. Even the dust of this book is gold. Even the least detail in the word of God is precious. You see, friend, we forget that, and so we overlook significant things. We forget that this book, really, even the dust of it, should be precious to us. And so this Lord's Day, we take up this theme again, this oft-neglected theme of the circumcision of Christ, with that idea in mind. Namely, that here, too, we have a precious word from on high. Here we have something that we are to regard as even more precious than life. We come in this verse to a sacred time in gospel history. This is obviously a sacramental moment. This is a second, by the way, a second moment of such kind that we have in Luke's gospel. You remember we left in the first chapter the circumcision of John the Baptist. And now in the second chapter we come to that of Christ. In the first instance, in John's circumcision, you have a remarkable moment, don't you? You have, in in that moment, you have a healing. Zacharias is healed from being dumb and from being deaf. And then you have, of course, a prophecy, a declaration of God's grace through Christ. And you have, as well, all kinds of people attending it with fanfare. That seems, externally, to be quite significant. But friend, I hope as we see this this morning, even though in Luke 2.21 we don't find any of those things, no healing, no fanfare, no word of prophecy, the second circumcision is by far the most significant. But in order for us really to see this, we need to pause as readers. We need to take up the word of God carefully. And in order to do so, we need to first of all think about this moment as it is a sacramental moment. And ask ourselves, what is the sacrament, or what are sacraments in general? And, of course, in the Reformed, we are often speaking of sacraments as signs and seals. And we do so rightly, because the scriptures themselves hold out to us that very language. Of course, in Romans 4, we're told this, Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of faith. That's Romans 4.11. Sacraments are signs, and they're seals. 
They're covenantal signs and seals. They are in every occasion and in our occasion in gospel history, the same is true. It's an external symbol, in other words, that is set forward to signify a spiritual truth. It's ordained to be so, called forth by God to be so, a sign, a symbol of some spiritual reality. But it's important for us to understand also that it is an act of confirmation. That's the sealing aspect of it. It is an act of confirmation of the covenant as well. In other words, friend, we should never forget that as we come to any sacramental moment in the scriptures, they are signs and they are seals. They're signs, of course, setting before us some spiritual truth, but they are also seals. They are acts of confirmation. They are, they're, in other words, friend, they are, as it were, securities for all that is embodied in the covenant. Every sacramental occasion in scripture is such, and this is no different. But it does beg the question, why do we have Christ actually engaging in such things? Of course, we have Christ here, circumcised. We'll see him observing the Passover, those two sacraments of the old covenant. And then we'll see him do the same for the new. Christ will be baptized, and he himself will sit at the Lord's table. And so the question is, why is it then that Christ is partaking of these sacraments? As I said to you before, I think perhaps the most straightforward answer is just this. We remember Christ's words to John the Baptist. He must be baptized as Christ because it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. And he says this, of course, as one made of a woman made under the law, Galatians 4.4. But it's important for us to understand, friend, that it is commanded by God. These signs, in every case, are commanded by God not merely as outward ceremonies. Not merely as signs. These things are commanded by God to be observed as sacraments. In other words, friend, what we're seeing here is Christ is partaking of these things not merely as rituals, empty of meaning to himself, but he partakes of them as sacraments, as they signify things to himself and as they seal things to himself. That is the only way that one can partake lawfully of a sacrament. And so of necessity, Christ does the same. One of our forebears wrote this, These sacraments are not only to be considered as acts of obedience enjoined by the law, but also as signs and seals of the covenant, whereby the mutual engagements of the contracting parties are sealed. Christ made use of these institutions agreeably to the intention of God, namely as a sacrament, who appointed them as was proper to be done by the most perfect and excellent servant with whom God was well pleased. In other words, Christ partook of these sacraments as sacraments necessarily. But as we think of sacraments as signs and seals, we understand also that there's another component, generally speaking, that's true of all sacraments. And that is every sacrament has with it the idea of a vow. Those who are partaking of the sacrament are also pledging obligation. And so, friend, you see this throughout the Old Testament and the New alike. Circumcision brings with it a certain set of obligations. In the New Covenant, in 1 Corinthians 10, the Apostle says there's a, there's a special obligation for those who would sit at the Lord's table not to partake of the table of devils. It confers greater obligation when we partake of these moments. And you see, friend, when we look at sacraments then, generally, we should see this. As Alting, one of our forebears wrote, sacraments illustrate the will and promise of God who calls 
apply the same specifically, and bind the calls to repentance and faith according to the tenor of the word or the condition of the covenant. A sense of obligation is also recognized when those who partake of the sacraments do so. But that leads us to the question, what of circumcision specifically? If that's the nature of sacraments in general, general, what about this particular sacrament that we see in our text? What what of circumcision? And, And I call your attention merely to the comments that we made, first of all, last Lord's Day morning. When we look at the sign and the seal of the Old Covenant administration of the Covenant of Grace, we're supposed to see there sealed and signed that God would indeed bring about that one seed from the line of Abraham who would bring about the blessing of all the nations. That belonged necessarily to the promise annex, as it were, to circumcision. Likewise, it also held forth the idea that there would this one seed that was promised would come, he would be cut off for the sake of his body, the church, so that the whole body would not be cut off. In other words, circumcision held out to us the promise of propitiation. And likewise, this sacrament also held out that through this one seed, all cleansing would come. All cleansing would come through him, both from guilt and from pollution. As you look at the sacrament then, it signs and it seals to the old covenant believer all that was promised in Christ. Christ himself, of course, is promised. And then all the benefits that would come from him are signed and sealed as well. But as we draw conclusions from this, first of all, friend, I want you to notice that there is a contrast that we can't miss. We think back to Luke 1 and we see a circumcision there. And it's appropriate for us, I think, to ask this question, well, how was that sacrament applied to John? Well, for John, what did he see? And what was signed and sealed to him? Well, friend, as he would reflect on his circumcision, he was supposed to see that he required this one seed that would come from the line of Abraham. He required the cleansing that would come only through this Christ. He required the one who would be cut off in his stead so that he could be reconciled to God. John would reflect on the circumcision in this way because he was a sinner. And the circumcision that was applied to him represented for him all the grace that he required from Christ. But as you come to this circumcision, that of our text, the circumcision not of those who would be saved, but of the surety himself, we need to recognize at the onset that what is signed and sealed to Christ is very different. And simply because of the fact that Christ required no cleansing from pollution, simply because of the fact Christ needed none to be cut off in his stead, In fact, what was signed and sealed here very much demonstrated that he was the one to whom all of these things pointed. He was the promised seed. He was the one who would be cut off. He was the one through whom regeneration and justification alone could be found. And so, friend, what did this sign and seal to Christ? Our older writers, once again, I think quite helpfully point us to the fact that in this moment you have signed and sealed to Christ all of the promises that were made to him in the covenant of redemption. What do I mean by that? Well, first of all, friend, when we think of the covenant of redemption at a very base level, we think of that agreement between the Father and the Son to save a people, a lost people of mankind. In the words of scripture it is this. The father predestinated them unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself 
according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace. In other words, as Christ himself reflects on it in John 17, he thinks of the people whom the Father has given to him, and also a work that has been given to him. The Father has predestinated a people to himself, and Christ has taken upon himself the work of redeeming that people, being their mediator between God, before God, in their stead. And so, friend, when we look at the sacraments, we can say very much the same of baptism, the Lord's Supper, Passover as well. We should see this, as Herman Vitzius writes, that in Christ's use of the sacraments, a confirmation of the promises, we find here both of those made by the Father to the Son, and by the Son to the Father. And that's the theme that I want us to consider this morning. Just this, that in circumcision you have sealed and signified to Christ the promises of the covenant of redemption. Circumcision sealed and signified to Christ the promises of the covenant of redemption. And briefly I want us to look at this under three headings. I want us to see this as it relates to his person, to his people, and finally to his own promise. And so first of all, to his person. Again, friends, as we look at this text, we need to remember here that if Christ is taking part in the sacraments, he is doing so as they are sacraments. Not merely as they are empty ceremonies, but as they have real spiritual meaning. And so, friend, we come to the conclusion just by that, that what you have here signed and sealed in circumcision, first of all, is the success, signed and sealed to Christ, of his work as a Redeemer. Sealed and signified to Christ in this moment is both his identity as the promised seed and also his success as the Redeemer. And first of all, the identity. Friend, as you remember what we said last Lord's Day, circumcision always pointed, always indicated Christ because he, of course, was the one in whom the covenant was founded. He was always the covenant mediator that circumcision belonged to, always the one who held out Yea and amen in himself, the promises of that covenant. And so when we come to this moment in Luke 2, we're supposed to recognize that the sign is now collapsing upon the one signified. The sign is looking to the one who had always pointed to, and is applied to him, setting him forth as the end of that sign, as the purpose, the very purpose for which it was given. The identity of Christ, in other words, friend, even in this moment, is sealed to him in a special way. As our older writers would tell us, even in this moment the Father is telling Christ that he is that seed. As he would in his baptism, thou art my son. So he does in this moment. The identity of Christ is set forward. But it's also important for us to remember too that in this moment you have the promised success of the mediator signed and sealed. Now why do I say that? A friend, it does take us back to the nature of a sacrament as a whole. Uh, when we think about a sacrament, we think of it as a means to strengthen and encourage faith. For us, the sacrament there is to wage war against our unbelief. But is there any sense in which we could say that Christ himself would partake of a sacrament to encourage his own faith? Again, friend, we should say yes to that. Uh, Gerardus Voss writes thus, As we see here, a trust in the promise of the Father can, and through the use of these signs, provide strength to Christ with respect to his human nature. In other words, as Christ would take part in these sacraments, not because he had any unbelief in himself, but merely to encourage that perfect faith that he always possessed, 
He would reflect on these things as yea and amen promises that were given to him by the Father. And you see Christ doing this, don't you? Even, in the, even as it comes to us in the writer of the Hebrews. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He looked at those promises that were given by the Father. He looked to them even through his humiliation. Friend, that was an act of a perfect, a perfect faith. An act of a faith that was not tampered at all by unbelief. But we should expect then that he would use even these sacraments to that end. Because, friend, after all, he is holy. As our mediator, as the God-man, he is making use even of the things, all of the means of grace, such as prayer. Other things instituted by God, the meditation upon God's word. And no less, of course, should we expect he uses the sacraments to that self-same end. And what was that object that he had in view? As our mediator, the God-man, looks by faith to the promises that are made to him specifically, what are they? Well, you have it here, don't you, in Psalm 16. Thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Now, friend, that says, of course, the psalmist is saying that the Lord God will be the one who will prevent him from, being, from seeing corruption. The Lord will be the one who will not leave his soul in hell. But Peter applies this specifically to Christ. Acts 13, 33. These are the words of Christ. And so, friend, throughout his life, what was the God-man meditating upon? What did the sacraments sign and seal to him? It was this promise that God would not, as the psalmist puts here, says it here, leave his soul in hell, neither will he allow his holy one to see corruption. But what does that look to? I recognize I'm leading you along and thinking through things, but, but what does that really look to? This idea that Christ's soul would not be left in hell and that this Holy One of God would not see corruption. Well, friend, it looks to one very basic thing. It looks to this idea. Just as you have it in 2 Timothy. That God was manifest in the flesh, writes Paul, justified in the Spirit. Justified. The surety of the covenant. The one who is without sin. Justified in the spirit. In what sense can we mean? In what sense can we say that? How can we say that Christ was justified? Well friend the scriptures tell us very plainly what he means. In the Old Testament it's put to us this way. These are the words of Christ. I gave my back to the smiters. And my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. And then in the very next lines he says this. He is near. That justifieth me. You see what the prophet Isaiah tells us. This one who is the servant of God. The suffering servant. Will give his back to the smiters. But that's not the end of the story. God himself will be his justifier. Well then the writer of the Hebrews explains to us. What is meant in that moment. This Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many. And unto them that look to him. Shall he appear the second time. Without sin. You see, friend, Christ, of course, never contracted his own guilt, but the guilt of his people was imputed to him. And at his resurrection, what you have there manifestly is just this. God discharged him from the debt that was owed to the, for, for the sake of the elect. He discharged them of their debt. 
The act passed from God legally, says Goodwin, to take his people's debt off from him and declared him discharged. And this alteration or discharge must necessarily be made by God, for he lawfully pursued the debt, and therefore he alone can give the acquittance. You see the point. The point is this. Christ, as mediator, was always promised to take upon himself the debt of his people. But after he had made full satisfaction, what was promised to Christ was this, that he would indeed be discharged of his people's debt, having paid it in full. And you see, friend, that's the sense in which we can speak of the justification of Christ. And that's the thing that takes place in the resurrection, the discharge of the surety. And in the sacrament, friend, because everything depends upon this, in every sacrament in which Christ partakes, and circumcision no less, that is signed and sealed to him, he would be surety for his people, and also as surety, once he had made full satisfaction, that debt would be discharged. Now, friend, what does this mean for us? First of all, friend, it should hold out to us. Just how incredible this moment really is, shouldn't it? The success of the God-man is here signed and sealed. And what is that success? That he would make full satisfaction for his people. And upon doing so, for our sake and justification, he himself would be discharged of all debt. An insignificant moment, according to most. But, oh, friend, if we look at the circumcision of Christ in this moment, we see nothing less than our own redemption signed and sealed. But that brings us to the second point. What of his people? What of his people in this text? As I've already hinted to you before, in this moment you have signed and sealed to Christ his success as the Redeemer and as the God-man. Oh, that also means then, for his people, they themselves will certainly be spared And cleanse. You see, he will be cut off so that his body, the church, will not be. He will be cut off so that they will be spared. That's the idea. And you see, friend, the idea is then in this moment, in the circumcision of Christ, Christ could reflect on this moment and say, Of surety, God has promised, they, my people, will be accepted in the Beloved. In me. They will be brought to God by me. Signed and sealed to Christ were these promises. That redemption which he would be secure which he would secure would certainly be applied, successfully be applied to his people. And even, friend, you ought to see here that their regeneration, that thing that really the people of God of the old looked to when they saw circumcision, that too would be sealed to them. Christ saw in this moment that their rebirth was sealed by Almighty God. This is the Father's will which hath sent me, that all which he hath given me should lose nothing. Friend, that was sealed in this moment. All that was promised him, the full redemption of all of God's people, signed and sealed in this moment to him. Again, friend, I know I'm reading to you many men from old but I think it's helpful here. One writer puts it this way. In his circumcision, the regeneration of the elect, the remission of their sins, their sanctification and glorification, 
in a word, all those benefits which by virtue of the covenant of grace are bestowed upon them were promised and sealed to Christ by the sacraments. If the sacraments here set before us a clear picture of Christ's success, necessarily that includes all of those parts that are promised to God's people. All aspects of their salvation are included, signed and sealed to Him. But friend, we can even go a step deeper, can't we? We can go a step deeper because here we remember we're speaking of the one of whose fullness we have all received. And grace for grace. In other words, friend, as we look at the covenant surety and as the head of his people receiving the sign and seal of these things. We should see him as mediator receiving every grace then that he would also then give to his people. Let's draw on the Baptist point. Of his fullness have we all received grace for grace. You see, friend, what's signed and sealed here is nothing less than the total salvation of his people. Sealed to Christ. Not because, of course, he needed salvation, but sealed to them because he had an interest. A desire to see his people saved. This was the very thing that was promised him by the Father. He would be a savior. And an efficacious savior at that. But friend, as you look at this text, it's important to remember that this is a sacrament to Christ. And as such, you ought to recognize too, that this will be used by Christ. Because, of course, every sacrament is ought, ought to be used by faith. It would be used by Christ as an encouragement to that spotless faith he always had. And why would he? Why would he? Because, friend, not only did he, as the Son of God, have an eternal disposition to save his people. But even as a man, he had a heart to save them. That's the writer of the Hebrews point, isn't it? In the second and fourth chapters of that epistle. As a man, Christ is affected for his people. As a man, Christ desires the salvation of his people. And so, friend, as a man, as he would look upon his circumcision in this moment and see signed and sealed the full salvation of his people, friend, that would warm his heart and encourage him in the work. It was the very intention of the sacraments to do so. Not only for those who be saved by him, but even the surety himself. Oh, beloved, do you see this? In this moment, Christ would be like the businessman eyeing so closely the promises that his shipping company would fulfill its obligation. The businessman looking at his precious cargo, longing to make sure that it got to its destination. And eyeing, eyeing with comfort and delight those promises. So is Christ, friend. We should assume Christ is doing the same thing. In fact, we must assume this as he's using these sacraments according to faith. The question for us is, friend, does his affection, does his effective use of these things affect us? Does it affect us that our Christ would look upon these signs and seals with delight? And all he sees there for his people is their salvation procured, promised, sealed and certified by God.
But we hasten to our third and our final point. And that is his promise. My friend, necessary to the sacrament is not just that it is God who is signing and sealing to his people the covenant, but also necessary to the sacrament and a sacramental use is the vow of the one who engages in the sacrament itself. And we can't spend much time here, but allow me to put it to you very pointedly. In this moment, what you have here is nothing less than Christ, as it were, renewing and engaging in those vows that belong to him as the eternal son and as the mediator between God and the elect. The vow that he would do all that was necessary to redeem his people. But friend, it's deep, isn't it? This moment then. As Christ would look back on this moment Friend, what he would see was not only that the, the elect would be saved. Not only would he see that his, that his taking upon himself the debt of his people would one day be discharged. But he would also see himself as the one who promised to be cut off for the sake of his people. Friend, the God-man, as he looked at this moment, would not look to another to be cut off that he might be spared. But as he saw circumcision and himself as its antitype, friend, he saw his own obligation, his own vow, to be the one to redeem his people, to be cut off in their stead. But we may go deeper still. I read to you one more time, this time from another writer. But I think the point is salient especially. Both Christ's satisfaction for sin and also his meriting happiness by his righteousness were carried on through the whole time of his humiliation. Christ's satisfaction for sin was not by his last sufferings only, though principally by them. But all his sufferings and all his humiliation from the first moment of his incarnation to the resurrection were propitiatory or satisfactory. In his circumcision, when he, what he suffered in it had the nature of satisfaction. The blood that was shed therein was propitiatory blood. But as it was a conformity to the law of Moses, it was part of his meritorious righteousness as well. Though it was not properly the act of human nature, he being an infant, Yet the human nature being the subject of it and being the act of his person, it was accepted as an act of his obedience, as our mediator. I opened last Lord's Day morning by saying to you that here we should find profound things. And friend, here is the profound moment. The thing in many ways that we've been building up to. To see here that even in verse 21 of Luke 2, Christ is engaging as the one who would make propitiation for the sins of his people. And doing that work as an infant. Friend, I don't need to prove that to you, do I? All I need to ask you is, why did he come? Why was he incarnate? And then I only need to ask you further, why then was he necessarily circumcised? Friend, it was not for his own sake. It was not because he needed to secure peace for himself with Almighty God. He was circumcised for his people. 
just as he would die on Calvary's hill for his people. My friend, as Christ would reflect on this, the question is, of course, how would he do so? And we don't need to bring in any speculation to that point, do we? Christ was sinless. Every reflection that he had upon the things of God, his heart was warmed to and warmed by. And so, friend, when Christ reflected on his circumcision, as it were, his first bloodshedding, how would he reflect upon it? We don't have to guess. You have it even in the psalm that we sang, Psalm 40. I delight to do thy will. A body, says Christ, thou hast prepared for me. And what is Christ's response to that from the heart? I delight to do thy will. I delight to be the one who will make propitiation for his people. I delight that my body would, be, would not be spared, that my people's would be. I delight that I would be cut off, that they might live. I delight to do thy will, to do the work that thou gavest me to do. Friend, when he would reflect on these moments, all those things that belonged to his part of the covenant of redemption, we are to recognize it would fill him with joy and with delight. Oh yes, friend, he would go to the cross despising the shame. But he would be delighted for the salvation of his people to go. Delighted that God had made him so. The zeal of Christ himself, Vitzius writes, is just this. That though his faith was never sinfully languid, his zeal never flagging. Yet when he reflected on his circumcision, it was roused and kindled to a flame just by the repetition of his obligation. Beloved, when our Christ would reflect on his obligation, signed and signified as it were, even in this moment, he would do so with delight for your sakes. For your sakes. As we close, just a few words of application. Friend, do you see in this moment your infant Redeemer? Your infant Redeemer. Doing the work necessary to save you. Do you see in this moment, even from the cradle to the cross, Him standing as the one who would be cut off, that you might not be? If you do, beloved, and you see these things by faith, this is a precious moment in gospel history. This, friend, will feel, will fill sails that are unmoved. This will lift flagging spirits. Even an infant Christ doing the work necessary to redeem him, redeem his people. But it does raise a second question. And perhaps it's tangential, but I think it's useful as we meditate on the nature of sacraments to ask the question, do we use sacraments as they necessarily point to Christ? Everything we've said about circumcision tells us that the sacrament itself always indicated Christ. Well, do we use the sacraments in that way, in the new covenant? Because certainly they point to Christ no less. You see, friend, if we don't, if we use the sacraments, but we don't use them with an eye to Christ... The Apostle Paul is very clear in the book of Galatians. We make those signs and seals 
of the covenant of works. Remember what the apostles' words in Galatians 5. If you are circumcised, you become now a debtor to the whole law. He points there not to the idea that circumcision of itself is a legal thing. He points to the idea that anybody who would come to God, who would seek to obey God outside of Christ, such as they would be doing and as they were doing in the churches in Galatia, they are really just signing and sealing to themselves the covenant of works. All they are doing is they are saying, I by my own power will merit salvation. And this sacramental moment just signs and seals that. And this is why, friend, many's baptisms, many who come to the Lord's table unworthily, all they are signing and all they are sealing is to themselves is their own destruction. Are we using the sacraments as they point to Christ? But friend, finally, there is a word of comfort here, isn't there? This text shows us that there was only one, only one, that circumcision ever indicated, and that was Christ. Only one who was able to do all that was necessary. And so, friend, do you find yourself woefully insufficient? In this moment, find here signed and sealed the sufficiency of Christ. A whole Christ who is entirely able to do all that is necessary for you. Or maybe, friend, you find yourself doubting and fearful. Friend, as you look at this text, as we've already said, you are not to forget that Christ would reflect upon this moment with the utmost affection. It was his delight even to undergo these things that he might buy you, redeem you, even by them. Friend, even his circumcision, even this part of his humiliation holds out to you this wonderful blessing, this wonderful promise, that, friend, your Christ is effective in the sense that his heart is always warmed to this task, redeeming you. But as we close... Friend, note what is signed and sealed here. What is signed and sealed to Christ from on high is the promise that none of his people would be lost. That his work would really and thoroughly be applied to each and every one. And so, friend, what you have in this moment is just another added security We needed none, but for our faith, God has given us so many. And added security that because he has promised not only to us, but to Christ himself, the fullness of the redemption of his people, we need never fear. All those who are in Christ will be saved to the uttermost. Even the circumcision of Christ this morning, friend, is for our sakes supposed to be a boon of our faith. And so come to Christ, friend. We say that at the end of every sermon, but especially at this moment. Come to Christ and you'll find by experience everything signed and sealed to Christ in this moment is certain. And even pertains to you who come to him by faith. Amen.